After months of research, a crack team of Daily Wire investigative reporters spreading out across the country from sea to shining sea have managed to discover several Democrats who are not running for president. Hillary Clinton, who used to be somebody or other, was among the first to make the startling announcement that she would stay out of the 2020 race. Using an empty Chardonnay bottle as a make-believe microphone, the former something told a gathering of pink reptiles floating on the barroom ceiling, quote, If you think I'm going to stand on a debate stage and take a load of crap from a bunch of crazy Stalinists, you're out of your ever-loving mind. The only thing I ever had going for me was the name recognition I got from being chained to that tailhound who promised if I stuck by him, he'd get me to the White House. And now, if I'm not the biggest damn fool on planet failure, my name isn't whatever the hell it is, unquote. Mrs. Clinton offered, offered to answer reporters' questions until closing time, then said it's closing time and pitched face first into her salad, losing consciousness. Another Democrat who says he will not run is Michael Bloomberg. The billionaire former mayor of New York said, quote, it was a t- tough decision whether to use the presidential bully pulpit to hector people about their eating habits or stay home and take a bath in gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. In the end, forcing socialism down the throats of poor people didn't seem as entertaining as just sitting around admiring how rich I am. Unquote. The final Democrat who says he may not run for president is Morgan T. Snarkums, a greengrocer from Omaha, Nebraska. Speaking to some guy who had stopped in to buy plastic garbage bags, Snarkums said, quote, I'm just a nobody who doesn't know much about anything, so it'd be too hard for me to distinguish myself from all the other Democrat candidates. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky dunky doo Ship shaped, tipsy topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray! It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray! Oh, hooray, hurrah! In the immortal words of the classic movie The Incredibles, if everyone is special, no one is. Likewise, if everyone's an anti-Semitic piece of garbage, Jew-hating creep, then it's not just Democrat Congresswoman Ilham Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Occasional Cortex, and the entire Democrat media establishment that is protecting them by pretending the problem is on both sides of the aisle. It ain't. It's the Democrats, especially the new left of left-wing Democrats. They hate Jews, and the Republicans don't. And guess what else? Hating Jews is not the same as criticizing Islamists for oppressing women, killing infidels, and trying to occupy and destroy the West. Anti-Semitism is not the same as opposing illegal immigration. Anti-Semitism is not the same as holding the opinion that homosexuality is a sin. Anti-Semitism is special. It's unique in Western history and unique in the Western mind, and it's especially awful and dangerous to everything we hold dear and everything good and noble about the human condition. It's no accident that the great civilization of Europe ended with a holocaust. It wasn't a holocaust of hate. It wasn't a holocaust against the other. A holocaust specifically designed to eliminate the Jews. That kind of anti-Semitism is on the rise, and the Democrats specifically express it and tolerate it. When former DNC second-in-command Keith Ellison and the Black Caucus unapologetically hang out with a jerk like Louis Farrakhan, and when Israel, of all nations, must defend its very existence from BDS supporters like Omar Ilhan and Rashida Tlaib. 
Yes, you can disagree with Israel. Yes, you can criticize a person who happens to be a Jew. You can even argue against the tenets of Judaism if you know what you're talking about. But genuine Jew-hating is flaming garbage from the burning dumpster of garbage hearts, and it's a Democrat problem, and they ought to take care of it. We'll talk more about it in just a second, but let's first talk about ring and neighborhood safety. You know, right this very week, one of the guys here at the Daily Wire had two people show up at his house at three o'clock in the morning and start asking him directions and trying to get into the house to use his phone and all this stuff. But luckily, he had one of these doorbells that where you can see people. This is what Ring provides, a doorbell where he could sing and talk to people so he could just look into his phone and say, Knowles, if this happens again, I'm going to complain. It wasn't Knowles. But the rest of the story is true. Ring's mission is to make neighborhood safer. You might already know about their smart video doorbells like that and camera that protect millions of people everywhere. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world so that if there's a package delivery or a surprise visitor, you'll get an alert and be able to see, hear, and speak to them all from your phone. And that's thanks to the HD video and two-way audio feature on Ring devices. As a listener, you have a special offer on a Ring starter kit available right now with a video doorbell and a motion-activated floodlight cam. The starter kit has everything you need to start building a ring of security around your home. Just go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. And when it comes to your door, you just press the button to say, how do you spell Clavin? <laughs> they can't answer that. You know it's trouble. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. All right. It is, it's mailbag day. We've got all your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, all right, all right. All your problems will be solved in just a few moments. But first, let's continue to talk about this. This is this is a thing. Obviously, has really got me uh, annoyed here. Uh, Ilan Omar, the congresswoman, she keeps making these remarks uh, about Israel that are just tinged with anti-Semitic rhetoric. Okay, you know, they first she says it's all about the Benjamins, and then she says that uh, that she's on the Foreign Affairs Committee, right? So she says. Uh, I should not be expected to pledge support or allegiance to a foreign country, which is an old canard about the Jews, that they can't uh, be good citizens because their, allegiance, their first allegiance is to Judaism or to Israel. I mean, this used to say the same thing about Catholics, that it was, that it was their allegiance, uh, that their allegiance was going to be to the Pope. That's why they couldn't vote in England. All right. So the Democrats make a move to try and condemn this like they did with Steve King. Remember, Steve King made some remarks that were taken to be bigoted. They condemned the remarks without naming him, but they then threw him off his committee uh, post, okay? They start, the Democrats start to have a condemnation of anti-Semitism. It's going to, supposed to come up for a vote tomorrow, I think. And suddenly, it's a debate. Wait a minute, <laughs> you're condemning anti-Semitism? Well, that's not the way we Democrats behave. The new young leftists are rallying around uh, Congresswoman Omer uh, and saying, you know, sh that she should be allowed to say these things. She's just attacking. Um, she's just attacking Israel. She's just criticizing Israel. And, and therefore, we need to put all this other stuff in this condemnation. Let's also condemn, uh, you know, anti-Muslim statements. Let's also condemn homophobia, all this stuff. And, and the, all of the young Democrats are basically looking to dilute this from what it's supposed to be, because anti-Semitism, look, I've said this a million times, I won't go into it forever, but anti-Semitism is the worm at the core of the Western apple. It is a hatred of God. It's a hatred, you know, the, the Western civilization is built from a classical tradition and the Jewish tradition that comes to us through Jesus, the Christian tradition. It, those two things, have, it's as if they're at war with one another because the classical tradition came along with a paganism that killed its children, that worshiped stuff, and the Jewish God wants you to be free 
That's a, that's a very big theme in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Jewish God wants you to be free. He gives dignity to the human being. He gives dignity to the poor and the weak and the small. And people hate that God. They hate that God because they hate his creation. They hate his creation because they hate themselves. It's, it is running through, this is run through Western civilization. I don't attack any specific religion, but you know, I, I do attack Christianity because Christianity, this was the worm in the core of Christianity. It was an anti-Christian belief. It was a way of projecting the hatred of God onto somebody else, saying, it's not us. We didn't kill Jesus. It's the Jews who did it. That's what it is. It's a way of getting rid of your hatred, pawning it off on somebody else. But that's what it is. And it, 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 when I say it's a Democrat prob- problem, I mean, it's a Democrat problem now. It is not consigned either to the left or the right, but that's not what we're talking about. There are, there's plenty of anti-Semites on the right, plenty on the left, but we're talking about political parties and people with power, people who are elected, who are serving in government. That's what we're talking about. The Republicans don't have this problem. The Democrats do. So here is the uh, guy, Elliot Engel, the congressman who heads the Foreign Affairs Committee and who's writing this condemnation that they can't pass. And he's on CNN and basically he just, he goes mealy mouth. It's just, it's not a about anti-Semitism. It's about any hatred anywhere. No, it's not. But he says it is. You're the chairman of a really important committee, right? Foreign Affairs. You're, this is the center of a lot. And it's certainly yeah. the center of this discussion about Israel. At what point do you say to uh, her, Congresswoman Omar, look, you're not on this committee anymore. You strip her of your seat. Are you close to that or at that point? No, I, 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 I'm not close to it. I, first of all, it's not up to me. This is done by the, uh, the leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that that would uh, do anything except exacerbate the situation uh, mm-hmm. even more. Uh, I'm looking to get rid of anti-Semitism, not looking to punish anybody. I think that it's very important that we, we keep our uh, eye on the prize. And I think that whenever there is hatred being spewed or, uh, again, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, Islamophobia, I think we have to speak out, and that's what I'm doing. Yeah, because he doesn't want to say that it's this person. You know, if you want to get rid of anti-Semitism, one way to do it is to expel anti-Semites from your committee. <laughs> I mean, and, and he doesn't want to say it's a problem. It's a problem in Islam. It's a problem in leftism. It has been a problem in leftism for a long time. It is built into leftism because it, it, leftism is anti-West. It is anti-freedom. It's anti-West. It's anti-spirituality. Uh, spirit, it's anti-Christian spirituality specifically because that is the heart of, of Westernism. You cannot believe, you cannot believe the feature that the New York Times ran next to its story about how the Democrats can't get around to condemning anti-Semitism. It is unbelievable. I will read it in just a minute. First, uh, you know, when I first started doing this, I, you know, I never expected ever to have a, any kind of a career on camera. So when I first started doing the Clavin on the Cultures uh, at PJTV, I decided to get a look of some kind. And I developed this look of an, you know, shirt untucked with a colored T-shirt underneath it. And I look back at those things and I think, gee, I wish they had untuck it then because they didn't. And shirts are not made to be worn. Normal shirts are not made to be worn untucked. But it's a cool fashion, very California, very Hollywood fashion. And untuck it has done the clever thing. They have developed shirts that are perfectly uh, developed to hang right on you when you are wearing them untucked. Untucked shirts were specifically designed for this. Uh, and it's it's this is the original. This is the original untucked shirt, a modern solution to an old problem. It doesn't matter what your size is. doesn't matter what your shape is. These shirts are perfect and they have all kinds of colors and designs, obviously. obviously. Try it in person at one of Untuck It's 50 stores 
or go to untuckit.com to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. You can save 20% off your first order by using my code CLAVEN at checkout. That's untuckit.com, promo code CLAVEN. And I know what you're thinking. I can read your mind. You're thinking, well, yeah, but how do you spell CLAVEN? There are no E's in CLAVEN. I just make it look easy. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Here's the story the New York Times runs next to the, the fact that the new left-left Democrats won't reject anti-Semitism. They will not do it. They will not do it. They may mouth it, but they will not really do it. So what's the issue, right? This is obviously what journalism does. Journalism extracts the issue that they want because journalists are now so biased, so intellectually corrupt, so one-sided, they only uh, extract the issue they think should be there. So if an Islamist goes into a bar and shoots it up, the problem is, is guns, not Islam. Right. That's the issue. The issue is then guns. If uh, a right winger goes into a bar and shoots it up, the problem is conservatism. You know, that's the way it works. They extract the issue. So what's the issue? What is the issue that The New York Times sees in the Democrats inability to pass a simple uh, resolution condemning anti-Semitism and maybe tossing Ilhan Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee, which he should not be? OK, here's the headline. Ilhan Omar's criticism raises the question, is IPAC too powerful? This is the Israeli uh, PAC, right? This is the, pro, the pro-Israeli PAC. That's the question. Is IPAC too powerful? Miss Omar's, I'm reading this now, Miss Omar's insinuation that money fuels American support for Israel, it's all about the Benjamins baby, she wrote, revived a fraught debate in Washington. Not, <laughs> unbelievable, not over whether this person should be kicked off a committee, it, it revived a fraught debate in Washington over whether the pro-Israel lobbying behemoth has too much sway over American policy in the Middle East. The backlash to Ms. Omer's tweet was fierce, with even Democratic leaders accusing her of trafficking in anti-Semitic tropes. The congresswoman apologized, but the swirling debate, not only around Ms. Omer, but also around broader currents buffeting the Middle East, has forced an uncomfortable re-examination of the questions that she has raised. Well, good for her for raising these questions about whether Jews have too much money, whether Jews are secretly influencing, uh, you know, foreign policy. No one ever thought of that before. Good for her for raising that wonderful anti-Semitic question. Has IPAC, this is again from the Times, has IPAC founded more than 50 years ago to strengthen, protect, and promote the U.S.-Israeli relationship become too powerful? And with that power, has IPAC warped the policy debate over Israel so drastically that dissenting voices are not even allowed to be heard? Shame on the New York Times. If there is such a thing as a person at the New York Times who can continue to feel shame, shame on them. That's disgusting. That's disgusting. That's a newspaper that isn't even fit to line a canary cage. A canary wouldn't see fit to crap on that paper. That is a terrible thing to do. It is a, te- you know, IPAC isn't even, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big pack. It's a real pack. They don't contribute to candidates. They don't give any money to candidates. They are fighting for a relationship with our allies, the only country in the Middle East that shares our values, the only one and the only one that the left sees fit to want to boycott and divest and sell. That That is an amazing, amazing piece of anti-Semitic writing. Shame on them. It is just amazing to me. Let's, let's listen, you know, listen to Chuck Todd. I, you, here you can see the argument played out and why, what's so wrong with it. Omar opened the door for Republicans to point fingers and say, aha, the left has a problem with anti-Semitism. And you know what? It does. 
but unless you want to forget the chance of Jews will not replace us by neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, unless you want to forget President Trump saying there were good people on both sides of that debate, unless you want to forget the synagogue slaughter in Pittsburgh last year, unless you want to forget all of that, you have to acknowledge that the right has a problem with anti-Semitism too. Both sides are doing a lot of finger pointing and there's a lot to point to. Isn't that sad? Anti-Semitism is on the rise. On the left, it's on the rise. On the right, it's on the rise. In Europe and a lot of other places. So let's not pretend it's on the rise in just the other political party. Left and right are not political parties. Left and right are not political parties. They are political positions. And it is true on the far left and on the far right, or as they now call it, the alt-right, which I think is more fair because it's an alternative to actual con American conservatism. It's not American conservatism. But let's, let's just divide the, the world into left and right. On the far left and on the far right, there is anti-Semitism. Listen to who he compared. This is a congresswoman. This is a woman in the halls of American power and, and so are all these other people, hang, these uh, Farrakhan lovers, hanging out with him. He's comparing them to the guys with ticky torches or wiki torches, whatever the hell they're called, marching in the streets, these white supremacist garbage heads. He's comparing a congresswoman to them. He's comparing a congresswoman to the guy who shot up a synagogue. Really? Really? That's the right and the left? Our, our right-wing anti-Semites are the outsiders of the outsiders of the outsiders, the furthest away from the people in power. Is there any relationship between Mitch McConnell and the guy who shot up that synagogue? No, of course there's not. And their guys are in Congress. Their guys are arguing. Their guys are at the New York Times writing front page stories about whether the Jews are too powerful. That's, that's a ridiculous comparison. And he throws in that canard about Trump saying there were good people on both sides. He was obviously talking about the statue uh, controversy. It was a stupid, uh, tone-deaf comment, but it was not anti-Semitic, and it was not supporting white supremacy. That is just crap. If it were, if it were supporting it, somebody would have asked him, do you mean that? But nobody has ever asked him, does he mean it? Because that's not obviously what he was talking about. That That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and they're doing it to run interference for a Democrat party and a left-wing philosophy that has become, by nature, infested with anti-Semitism. Barry Weiss uh, uh, is a writer. I think she's a writer at the Times, though she's constantly under fire because she's not woke enough. Uh, but she's been writing a lot about this. And she and her dad, Lou Weiss, attended the um, the synagogue that got shot up. So it had a big effect on her. And Barry was on the view. And she was saying the same thing. It's on the right and on the left. But she did talk about the way it slips under the guise of progressive policy. Politics. This is cut number two. As you said, when you see people marching with tiki torches or you hear the Pittsburgh killer writing on social media, all Jews must die, that's very obviously eliminationist. The problem with anti-Semitism from the far left is that it often, oftentimes is smuggled into the mainstream under the guise of progressive values. So it says about itself, I'm just standing up for the downtrodden Palestinians, which they are. I am just standing up for justice. I'm standing against racism. And so th that kind of language is a siren song, including to Jews, 75% of whom vote for Democrats. And so that's the problem with it, is that it's not as easy to spot, oftentimes because it says, we're just about criticizing Israel. In the case of Did Ilhan- Did Nancy Pelosi shut it down? Nancy Pelosi shut it down very aggressively mm -hmm. with Ilhan Omar. The problem is, is that she still has a spot on the, on the right. Congressional Foreign Affairs Committee. And well, that's a real question. See, I would go even further. I, would, I think as the party moves left, it 
moves into anti-Semitism land. Whenever you're talking, whenever you're against freedom, whenever you're against the human person, as as when you want to leave babies to die if they escape your abortion, uh, whenever you're against the dignity and freedom of the individual, you are going to ultimately be against the Jews. It's the this anti-Semitism. It is the devil's flagpole. It is when you see it waving, you know who's living there, and it's it is on the left, on the right, but right now it's. It's the Democrat Party that represents the furthest extreme of its own philosophy. Michael Goodwin, writing in the New York Post, says it's no coincidence that the Democratic Party is increasingly both the anti-Israel party and home to a growing number of anti-Semites. To be clear, the two things are not always the same, but something is going on when both are defining elements of a political organization. One obvious truth is that Dems have failed to deal with anti-Semitism forthrightly and now are confronted by a metastasizing cancer in their ranks. Another development was Obama's effort to lure Iran in from the pariah state cold, despite its vow to eliminate Israel. You know, by the way, this does go back to Obama. You know, Obama, for 20 years, went to the church of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who was, what? what's the name? Liberation, Christian liberation theory, which has been infested with anti-Semitism. He's the guy uh, who, you know, Obama the other day, <laughs> I, you know, so there are times when I miss Obama just because I love the absurdity of the guy's ego. The Obama and Michelle were making a speech the other day, and, he, and Obama said, if we could form a network of young leaders, not just in the United States and around the world, then we got something. If we can train a million Baracks and Michelles who are running around thinking they can change the world, that would be, that would be great. You know? I mean, I thought like I, I have nightmares like that where like you look out the window and there's a million Baracks and Michelles out there. He loves himself. He loves himself. This guy sat for 20 years, right? 20 years of Sundays in the Reverend, Reverend Jeremiah Wright's church. This is the guy who called Israel an illegal state. This is the guy who used that old uh, joke, Jesus was a Palestinian. Jesus was not a Palestinian. Palestine is the Anglicization of, uh, is actually the Latinization of the word Philistine. Remember Goliath, the Philistines, who the Jews were always fa- fighting when they, when the Romans wiped out the Jews in 70 AD, I think it was, um, they they renamed the territory Palestine as just a way of giving them the finger, basically, a way of telling the Jews what for Jesus was a Jew. He was a J-E-W. That is how you know what Jesus was. His entire philosophy, his entire insight comes from being the son of the God of the Jews. Remember, did, did I, I, I think I've told that story. My favorite story about John Wayne on his deathbed, where he was, they were always saying Wayne was a, an anti-Semite and one of his visitors was a Jew and a guy I said, oh, I wouldn't think you'd want to see him, uh, Duke, because he's a Jew, joking around. And Duke pointed at the ceiling and he said, the only Jew I don't want to see right now is that one because he didn't want to die. You know, that's the Jew that uh, that Jesus was, that Jesus came from. All of his philosophy, everything he quoted came from the Old Testament. It's This is the this is part of Leftism. It is part of leftism because leftism is now anti-Western. It is anti-freedom. It is anti-the individual. It is anti-all the things that come into our culture through the God of the Jews because he is God. Because he is God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That thing in the New York Times, I'd like, you know, if I believed in burning uh, words, that would be a good way to start a fire. Uh, I, I, got, I just got to drop in on R. Kelly. Uh, here's another one of these stories 
of a guy who basically meant seems to have beaten the law for years while women, one woman after another was complaining that he was treating them. There was a video, apparently. Uh, Avenatti says he's got a video of this guy mistreating women. They say he's held them in a cult-like uh, state. And he was on with, um, well, she's in with Gail King, and she, she, Gail King handles herself very well here. But R. Kelly just goes nuts. Just play the cut seven. How stupid would I be to do that? I didn't say you That's were holding. That's stupid, guys. I didn't. Is this camera on me? Yes, it's on. That's stupid. Use your common sense. Don't forget the blogs. Forget how you feel about me. Hate me if you want to. Love me if you want. But just use your common sense. How stupid would it be for me to, with my crazy past and what I've been through, Oh, right now, I just think I need to be a monster and hold girls against their will, chain them up in my basement and and don't let them eat and don't let them out unless they need some shoes down the street from their uncle. Stop it. Y'all quit playing. Quit playing. I didn't do this stuff. This is not me. I'm fighting for my life. Y'all killing me with this. I gave y'all 30 years of my career. Robert. Are y'all trying to kill me? You're killing me, man. This is not about music. I'm trying to have a relationship with my kids, and I can't do it. What, what? Y'all just don't want to believe the truth. You don't want to believe it. You know, it's interesting that this is happening at the same time a Michael Jackson uh uh, documentary is bringing that story up again and a lot of people saying uh, that he really did all the things that we all kind of thought he did uh, with with children uh, it's it's just interesting I guess that this 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 stuff has been around for so long in plain sight because uh, R Kelly has been accused of this before and got off the hook Michael Jackson off the hook uh, it's it's interesting that it's been around and this change I guess from the me too movement uh, which I believe to be a reaction to the fact that a lot of these stories were buried to protect Bill Clinton. A lot of these stories were buried to protect Bill Clinton. And then when they thought, oh, we can get go up against Donald Trump with this stuff, uh, we'll go up, we'll, suddenly we'll make an issue of it. And it turns out a lot of the people getting caught are not the kind of Trumpian uh, people they wanted to get, they wanted to have caught. It's karma. It is actual karma. All right, we got the mailbag coming up. But first, I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come over to dailywire.com and subscribe for a lousy 10 bucks a month, lousy 100 bucks for the year. Most importantly, not only do you get Shapiro and Knowles and Walsh and me, all those shows that you can just watch right on the site, but you can ask questions in the mailbag and all your problems will be solved. I mean, if somebody said to you, 100 bucks a year, all your problems will be solved, how can, how can you pass that deal up? I don't know. Here comes the mailbag. Mailbag. <laughs> I can't. I can't get a scream for the mail. Oh, man, where is it when you need it? All right, from uh, from Austin. Uh, he's finally trying to clear things up. Uh, this is probably not our Austin. Probably a different Austin. 
Hey, Andrew, do you think that religious experiences and miracles still occur today? If so, why don't they happen on a larger scale? I think they happen all the time. I mean, the thing about miracles is they vanish after they occur because there's always a reasonable explanation looking backward. But, you know, a, a doctor says, oh, this guy is going to die and he doesn't die and he gets better. And the guy says, well, that's, you know, because of this is what happened. He can describe the physical things that happen. He doesn't say it's a miracle because he doesn't believe. You know, they say uh, that seeing is believing, but also believing. Believing is seeing, and I think that there are plenty of things that we ascribe uh, to natural causes that do have natural causes, but don't have a central natural cause. One of the char character in one of my novels once said, uh, "There's a reasonable explanation for everything, and that's the one some people choose to believe." So I think uh, one of the things I have found since I became a believer is that once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's happening all around you uh, in ways that make it that. It is more sensible to and simpler to describe it as miraculous or the work of God than to go back and sort of reconstruct a, a reasonable explanation. Uh, there's always is a reasonable explanation going backwards, but not always going forward. Uh, from Tori, dear Clavin, the great, I have been here listening from the beginning. Your wise words are always a bright place in my day. I have a conundrum that I'm facing as a Christ follower. I'm in the healthy, I'm in the 60th year of my life and in the healthiest and best romantic relationship of my life with a widowed man I started dating last year uh, after I left a 30-year-long abusive marriage. The man I'm dating is a good guy, but he has a dual Canadian-U.S. citizenship. Most of his family are in Canada. To be close to his aging mom, he moved back to Canada. Um, so we've been having a long-distance relationship. Um, he's retiring from his job next year, and here's where it gets complicated. I knew there was a chance that we would live in Canada for a while, and I was open to that, but I got terrible news that changes everything. Uh, before I met him, I drove home with a couple of glasses of wine and got a DUI. That awful experience taught me a lot, and I've been honest about it. I've only visited in Canada once, but just found out that their laws can, for can forbid me to visit and to live there, even if we're married, for a period of at least four years. He has some compelling reasons to stay up there and I'm devastated that I can't see a way through this. I can't continue to be in a long distance relationship, but I just, I can't imagine giving him up. What in the world can you suggest? You know, there's a lot of underlying stuff in here. Um, you know, um, first of all, you didn't say that they have banned you. You said that they could ban you. Uh, I, I sincerely doubt that they would ban you for a single DUI, uh, especially if you were married. Um, I'm wondering if there's some other issue. Does this guy, are you sure this guy wants to be with you? Are you sure he wants to uh, marry you? I, it just, this is a very, you're catastrophizing. You're saying uh, this is going to be an absolute disaster, but the disaster hasn't actually happened. So why are you doing that? Uh, there's got to be some underlying reason. Is it because you feel insecure in the relationship? I mean, I would just go forward and see what happens if uh, Canada does make a move, you know, you can't change their laws. So if Canada does make a move to ban you, then you and this man are going to have to work something out. Uh, he can come back across the border. And if that's if they do, and if they do, you, I'm sure you can probably appeal the decision as well. I really sincerely doubt that one DUI is going to keep you out of the country. But even so, that's just something that you work out with him. But it just sounds to me like you're actually dealing with something else that you suspect about this relationship, that maybe he's not uh, into it as much as you want him to be. I'm not sure. But I, it just sounds like you're making a catastrophe where none has existed. Or maybe I don't have enough information, but that's what it sounds like to me. Um from Paul, oh, great and wise Clavin with no E, how is it that the Border Patrol Council briefing, uh, which naturally reported by, by other outlets to be as low as 30% lower than Daily Wires, to, 
It doesn't include the word invasion. If one considers that 268,000 people are coming in, that's larger than the standing armies of all but 17 countries uh, and larger than both the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, it's 30 people an hour. How is that not an invasion? You know, I actually don't think it's an invasion, uh, just to be honest with you. I mean, it, it's an invasion metaphorically, but if you're talking about an invasion, which is the uh, a unified army attacking your country in order to occupy it and conquer it. That's an invasion. Or even to pillage it. Uh, that's an invasion. These are people coming because they're li- probably a lot of them in their lives are terrible. They're trying to find a place to live. They're trying to get in. You can call it an invasion in the same way, uh, you know, that you can, that's a metaphor. You can use that metaphor, but it is a political metaphor and you can't get carried away with that because it's not a group of armed uh, it's not an armed army trying to take over the country, which is what an actual invasion is. That's, you know, that's the reason they're not using it, because it's just that's a po- it's a political trope that Trump uses to gin people up, basically. Um, uh, from Jack to Lord Claven, repository of wisdom and bastion of truth. Uh, in this in the news this week was a story from London where researchers have allegedly cured a man of HIV. Right. Making him the se- second such case. This is certainly an inspiring and monumental scientific accomplishment, but it has me wondering about what this kind of progress could indicate for the future of humanity. We live in a time when technology is developing amazing leaps and bounds. I find myself pondering with a fair amount of unease, a future of humanity in which there's no suffering, no disease we can't cure, no flaw we can't edit out, no problem we can't fix. As a Christian, I believe in an intelligent design and God's plan. And while I don't pretend to know God's plan, I have observed that from the ashes of tragedy, good can often blossom. Chest. Uh, this brings me to my question, which is, what is your opinion on the relationship between technology, suffering, and spirituality? Should there be any limits to which problems we, as to which problems we address with science? I love the show. Thank you for broadening my thinking and keeping keep up the good work. You know, uh, um, Jack, I think that from, from my point of view, you're pr- approaching this from the wrong direction. You don't have to worry about God's plan. God has his plan <laughs> well in hand. God is bigger than you. He's stronger, faster. He practices while you sleep, okay? God, God's plan is fine. So we don't have to worry about that. What you have to worry about, basically, for both yourself and for your family and for your nation, is whether we are going to be uh, led by God or whether we're going to be dragged by him because God b- b- believes in our freedom. I mean, that is a, a big part of the Bible. I seriously believe that the second fall of man was when the Jews went to the prophet uh, Samuel, I believe, and said they wanted a king. They didn't want to live free. And Samuel said, you know, that you don't know what this is. You're going to be enslaved. It's going to be terrible. And God said to him, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. When they, you reject freedom, you're rejecting uh, God. So what you have to worry about is, and so God will give you freedom and he will allow you to destroy yourself. He'll allow you to destroy yourself. He'll allow your entire country to destroy itself, to make those choices. But his plan will be fine. So what you're really thinking about here is what happens in a world in which we can eliminate consequences. Now, I, I do not believe that science should be restricted in any way, as long as it's not doing harm. But of course, human actions have to be restricted. I'll give you an example. I, I, I really... Uh, have big questions about antidepressants. I think they are way, way, way overprescribed, okay? And and I think that they're prescribed for nothing, and I don't think they, anybody takes them, people off them, and I don't think people get the uh, talk therapy they need when they're on them, and I think we're being they're being used to drug, basically drug people out of their unhappiness. I also think that using them uh, creates the idea in society that we are chemical bags that can be fixed and tuned up, and that creates more depression. Depression is on the rise. It's not on going down. 
even since the invention of antidepressants. That doesn't mean that antidepressants don't have a use. There are people who are depressed because of brain chemical imbalances who can be fixed that way. And that, you know, that's a fair, a fair use of them. I just think they're overused. So it's people's actions using technology that that are bad. The internet, greatest invention of my lifetime. Love the internet, changed my life. It's terrific. I love it every day. I'm always on it. I think it's great. You get addicted to porn on the internet because it's so easy to get your hands on it. That's on you. That's your behavior. So it's it's human behavior that's always the problem. It's not the technology. If If we eliminate, I mean, remember, Jesus said that you are going to, if you follow me, you are going to perform miracles even greater than mine, and that's what's happened to Western civilization. That's what's happened to Christendom, the the heartland of science, the birthplace of science. Uh, we are going to perform incredible incredible miracles if consequences for for bad actions are removed. Those bad actions are going to remain bad, and you don't have to worry about God's plan playing itself out on bad actions. It will. It will do that. It will happen. But what you do have to worry about is how are you going to explain to people that these things are bad when, for instance, you can sleep around without getting a, having a baby, you know, without getting pregnant, without being dishonored? Uh, how are you going to explain that that's a bad thing, that that's not the way you should treat your body? Well, you know, people are still going to be unhappy if they do that. It's still going to be a miserable life. It's still going to be a miserable way to treat yourself. People who fall in love and have love are still going to be, uh, have more fulfilled and, and realized because God's plan is still going to be in effect. But I, I do believe that these are good things. I don't believe that, uh, you know, I don't want to see people, even, even a guy who's done something amazingly stupid, like slept with 20 people <laughs> unprotected in a single night. I don't want to see him die of AIDS. I don't think that that's like, oh yeah, that's a capital offense. You die. I just want him to understand that maybe as a human being, he should have more dignity, uh, and, and respect for himself than that. And I think as, as these consequences get less, we're going to have to make better arguments. I think that's, that's the idea. But don't, we, we don't have to worry about God's plan. God's plan will take effect. Um, from uh, Jeremy, Lord Clavin, you said you played Assassin's Creed on the Oscars backstage show. The tagline of Assassin's Creed is nothing is true, everything is permitted. Um, this seems a very leftist sentiment. Oh, it's a really leftist game. It's a really left-wing game. Uh, giving the Gamergate saga the decline of the movie industry and active cultural media targeting from manipulation by the left, do you believe the video game industry will be the next major battleground in the culture wars? It already is. I mean, that's what Gamergate was. It was people trying to defend their right to play whatever games they wanted and not to have games censored for, for wokeness or political uh, correctness. Of course, anything that is popular, it's only the only reason it hasn't happened is because progressives tend to be old fuddy-duddies and they don't know the game, they didn't know gamer the gamer world was there until it started to make so much money. I mean, progressives are the most backward people on earth. And so they, you know, that was a, a place where a lot of uh, right-wingers were and are uh, hanging out in the gamer world. Clavin the Wise from Joey. Over the last two years, your show has become the favorite part of my daily routine. I want to thank you personally for guiding me back into a routine of regular prayer and the more fruitful life that has come with it. Uh, your humor and advice remind me often of my father. He has been dealing with a multitude of health issues uh, and is undergoing his most serious surgery yet on Thursday with a high mortality rate. My family has been preparing for the worst, which includes myself taking over the duties of the head of the house. I know in my heart everything will be okay, and this is just the first step to recovery. Uh, if you have any advice on how I should be preparing, please share uh, and please include him in your own prayers this week. Thank you for everything. Well, listen, Joey, first of all, I'm sorry that's happening. Uh, listen, you know, not every story has a happy ending. I don't know what's going to happen to your father. You don't know what's going to happen to your father. I'm glad you feel optimistic, and I hope you're right, uh, but you don't know. I don't know how old you are, so I don't know how much 
of the responsibility of uh, leading your household, uh, you're going to have to take over. I mean, if you're, you know, 14, <laughs> not, not as much as if you are, in fact, uh, the the adult in the, in the room. So, you know, what you should be concentrating now is on your concern, your anxiety, your grief for your father, how you can comfort the people around you, how you can be comforted yourself. That's the thing you have to focus on right now. If the, if the worst comes to the worst uh, and, you, and you lose him, you're going to have to start to find out if you are going to take a leadership role, then your leadership role is going to be about comforting people, making decisions, uh, understanding how the household works, where the, uh, you know, what, what the kind of situation on money is and all those other things that heads of households uh, take care of, whether they're male or female. Uh, if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to be a leader on, uh, on how to grieve, on how to lead people from grief into uh, a, a wiser and deeper uh, feeling about life. But right now, right now, your issue is uh, dealing with the, your own emotions and the emotions of the people around you in this very, very trying, uh, troubling time. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know how old you are, so it's hard for me to give a reasonable answer to this question about what your role is going to be if the worst comes to the worst. But let's hope it doesn't. Let's pray it doesn't. And uh, and you'll have time with your father left. And, and in that case, uh, if you do, maybe this is something that you should talk to him about uh, and ask his, his uh, opinion on. Um, Let's see. Is there anything else I can do? Well, um, here's another question about, uh, this is from Andrew. Uh, it says, I have to ask that you say you use sex and cursing in your writing today because that's what reflects reality today. Couldn't you create an amazing story and world without the sex and cursing? Wouldn't that be better to present for the society over feeding into what our society today expects and wants? I love Another Kingdom, but I honestly think the story is so amazing without the sex and cursing, it would be it, it would, if anything, be a good example for other conservative writers to look up to to strive to write such great stories as Another Kingdom. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I truly admire and appreciate all you do. Hashtag let wisdom reign. Uh, you, you know, I've spoken about this before. I tried to write Another Kingdom without any cursing uh, in it, and it just seemed silly. It just didn't reflect the people who it was. I was writing about. Listen, I believe that you're ta you are responsible you know, Rush Limbaugh always kids. He's got kids that he's got talent on loan from God. But I believe that's literally true. The word talent comes from a parable in the New Testament in which three men are given talents, which were a measure of silver. They're given talents and they're supposed to do something with it. And that has become uh, your, this is your talent. This is your gift that you have that you're supposed to do something with. I believe that I don't serve God when I don't write the truth. I believe that I'm meant to write the truth about my civilization and my society. My stories take place in, in places where people use certain kinds of language. And I think that I use uh, every word I write. I write very carefully. I know exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and why I'm putting it there. You know, it doesn't mean I don't make mistakes, but I mean, I'm a very intentional writer. I can't write a story that leads people to truth without telling the truth. And sometimes with certain characters in certain situations, that includes having them sound realistic and having them say realistic things. You know, I've told this story before, but it's a good story. I was in a, uh, a meeting in Hollywood with a, the, a person who uh, bought things for a very big network. And we, she and I started talking about Game of Thrones. And the leftist trope at that point was Game of Thrones had too much rape in it. Very bad, had too much rape in it. And I said to her, you know, they're just being honest because in a society without guns, 
you know, women, the whole thing about Game of Thrones is it's a story about power. And one of the forms of power is, is men's power over women, their physical strength over women. And they're just showing that. And she said, well, they should just not write it. They should leave it out. And I thought, yes, then it would be a good show, but not a great show because it wouldn't tell the truth. The truth is what makes work uh, catch fire. I don't even understand how when, when you show the, the way men think, which is in a very sexualized way, very often, when you show the way men think, men say, oh, that's me. And if you show that person doing something good, if you show a flawed, damaged person doing something good or reaching for something better than himself, uh, then you're showing them themselves. If you're showing them a square-jawed uh, Bruce Willis hero who can do no wrong, then that may be fun to watch. I like watching those, those movies. Uh, but but that doesn't exactly take me anywhere because I I, I already think that guy is not me. Uh, that's that's part of the reason why I do what I do. Like I said, I'm very careful about it. I'm try to just trying to tell the truth about the world that I'm living in. Part of which truth is that it is the, the creation of God. Let me finish. Uh, I, I have. Um, I've been talking about video games all week, and I want to talk just a little bit more today and tomorrow about it, and then I'll stop. I, we're getting a lot of questions in the mailbag about video games, and I didn't address a lot of them because I wanted to finish what I'm saying first, and then I'll answer questions if I haven't answered them uh, in this segment. I was talking about the way in which, because I was young and starting my life, that video games would come in and out of my life. I would see them, see the great leaps that they had taken, and then get addicted to a new one like uh, Super Mario or Space Invaders. And then I'd be, get tired of that. I'd stop playing for a while. And then suddenly I'd stumble on this new advance. And that went right on uh, into when I left America and I moved to England. Uh, I stopped playing. I was working so incredibly hard uh, trying to establish and build on my writing career and trying to support my family that I wasn't really playing any games. And one day I walked into a stationery store back on the days when they had stationery stores. And there was a bargain bin, five pound bargain bin. And in it was the game uh, Diablo, the computer game Diablo, which is an amazing, amazing game. Now you have to remember the last thing I'd really seen up close was Super Mario. So I had not seen this incredible new advance in animation, in reality, in, uh, in specificity that Diablo had, a story about a guy fighting an infestation of uh, devils in a uh, medieval kingdom. And I brought that home, it was five pounds, right? So it was on sale. So I brought it home, popped it into my computer at work, which was a major, major mistake because I started playing, well, I'll just play it for 10 minutes when I take a break from time to time. Then I was playing it my entire lunch hour. And then now and then it would go past my lunch hour where I was hitting the, the mouse so so much because that's how you fight in uh, Diablo on PC. Uh, you're, you hit, hit the mouse. I actually busted the mouse. But then this is when I realized, oh, wow, this is going to be an art form. This is going to be a, a way of telling stories like none before. I remember going to a store. I love Diablo so much. I was like, please, sir, may I have something else like this? A game that has been long forgotten called Realm of the Haunting. The first time I played a first-person shooter, and it was a ghost story. And you know, I love ghost stories. So this was a first-person shooter. I could not get over this thing. I was just blown away by it. And that was the beginning of the 90s, which I believe thus far has been the golden age. The 90s were the golden age of video games because they were developing. Art forms are usually at their best at that moment when the artists are exploring new things, when Hitchcock is realizing that he can cut stuff out, when he's playing with sound, when sound comes in and he keeps parts of film silent. That's when movies are at their best. When I say that 1939 was the greatest year in movie history, it was. I mean, that Shakespeare comes early in the, in the English 
theater. Dickens comes early in the English novel. The greatness uh, comes when people are actually in, inventing stuff, inventing ways of doing it. And then there's still going to be great examples, but that golden age comes when things actually break free, as they did with TV in the 90s as well. So that, uh, in the, yeah, the late 90s, early 2000s. Think of the games, though, in the 90s. Tomb Raider, Halo, Metal Gear Solid, all the Super Mario games, Mega Man, games like Monkey Island that had uh, humor and puzzles and everything, Silent Hill, great horror game, uh, Resident Evil, Apocalypse, talking about Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis voiced that, one of the first major stars to be in a game. I was playing them all. So I was playing everything, got a, a platform at home, had to take it out of work so I wouldn't waste my work day, but I was coming home, was playing it with my daughter, playing it with my son. And when I saw about it, you know, there had been all this talk about hypertext fiction, that once there was a hypertext where you could press a button and leap from space to pace, space to pace, you'd be able to create, create new stories that didn't have a single thread. Well, it turns out that people like a single thread. They want to be told stories. But what was different about video games was that video games, like the movies, are essentially a visual art. They're essentially a visual art. The thing about movies is it's really, they tell stories through pictures. This was Hitchcock's great discovery, that sound was not necessarily the kind of innovation it would be at the theater, say, where everything is really the language. In movies, it really is what you're watching. And that's why screenplays have gotten shorter and shorter. They're half as long now, even more than half as long than they were during the golden age of film when people were talking a lot. It's uh, Art forms follow their own logic to become the extremist form of what they are. So movies have become much more visual. What really struck me about video games as an art was how immersive they are, was that the gameplay, the uh, story, drew, led you into a visual world so that you felt, as I have never felt in any other form, completely wrapped up in it. It was an amazing thing to be in a med medieval village, to be in an apocalypse, to be in a, in a jungle. A lot of the stories were being stolen. Resident Evil was stolen from uh, Night of the Living Dead. The um, the Tomb Raider stories were obviously Indiana Jones with a girl with uh, a great figure. And But, but it was the act way that the gameplay neutralized your uh, your disbelief and drew you into this amazing, amazing visual world. As that developed, I started to notice that there were limitations to the way video games could tell stories. And I think that's what we're coming up against now. And I'll talk about that tomorrow at the end of the week. I've gone over. I've got to stop. This is Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. See you tomorrow. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Jackson's legacy crumbles under charges of pedophilia, illegal immigration surges, and Democrats ignore anti-Semitism once again to cover for their fresh faces. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show.